there are people who are lost, and then there are people who know they are lost. Welcome, everyone, in Mantox land. I hope that you're having a fantastic week. This is Connor Beaton, founder of Mantox. Uh, I will be by myself today as Mr. Roger Nairn. Uh, it was not able to make the podcast, unfortunately, but that's okay. This is a phenomenal, phenomenal conversation. No disrespect to any of our other guests that we've had on, but this was absolutely one of my favorite conversations that I feel like I have ever had. Greg McEwen, the, the guest that we have on today, who is the author of a book that you've probably heard called Essentialism, is just an absolute gem. He's he's extremely well-spoken, very intellectual, and I took a lot away. One of the key things that I took away from this was the idea of expectation failure. I love that, expectation failure. Greg really believes that that's how we ultimately learn it. It actually might be the only way that we really truly learn fundamental core lessons in our life is through failing at some of the expectations that we have. So who is Greg McEwen? Well, Greg McEwen has dedicated his career to discovering why some people break through to the next level and others don't. The definite treatment of this issue is addressed in Greg's latest project, the instant New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller, Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less. As well as frequently being the number one time management book on Amazon, this book challenges core assumptions about achievement to get to the essence of what really drives success. Oh, juicy, juicy. So Greg is also the CEO of a company called This Inc. And this company's mission is to assist people and other companies to spend 80% of their time on the vital few rather than the trivial many. Now think about that, to spend 80% of the time on the vital few rather than the trivial many. Now, some of his clients include Adobe, Apple, Google, Facebook, Pixar, Salesforce, Symantec, Twitter, VMware, and Yahoo. That is one hell of a resume. Greg's writing has also appeared or been covered by Fast Company, Fortune, Huffington Post, Politico, and Inc. Magazine. He's also one of the most popular bloggers for Harvard Business Review and LinkedIn's influencers groups, averaging about a million views a month. Absolutely phenomenal. Uh, So before we jump into the conversation with Greg, I just want to remind you of two things. First and foremost, we have the big event uh, for about 400 to 450 people here in Vancouver, BC, and we are hosting Mr. Lewis Howes uh, from the School of Greatness. We had him on the podcast the other day. Absolutely phenomenal. It's one of our highest ranked podcast episodes so far, so you'll definitely want to check that one out. But Lewis has written a New York Times bestselling book as well called The School of Greatness, and we are bringing him here to Vancouver for an epic event with him and Mr. Ryan Holmes, who is the founder of a company called Hootsuite, which is one of Canada's biggest and most successful stories. So you'll want to check that out. The day is going to be all about greatness. Now, just for getting a ticket at the event, you'll also get a copy of Lewis Howes' book, The School of Greatness, and you'll have a chance to get that book signed by him after the event. The other thing really quickly is we are launching in Toronto, April 18th. It's going to be huge. Tickets are on sale for both of those events right now, and they are going quickly. So without further ado, I would love to introduce you to Mr. Greg McEwen. 
All right, Greg, thank you so much for being on the Man Talks podcast. Welcome. I'm so happy to be with you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for joining us today. So uh, I wanted to start off how we always start off because this deal really gives us some great stories and insight. Can you tell us a story about a defining moment for you as a man? I would say that my defining uh, moment over the last uh, few years, certainly maybe as a uh, as an adult, came um, a few years ago when um, I got an email from my boss at the time saying, Friday would be a very bad time for your wife to have a baby. <laughs> I mean, she was expecting, otherwise that would have been an even odder email to receive. Uh, but but, but he, here I am, Friday comes, that's when our daughter is born, we're in the hospital, wife is well, she's looking radiant, daughter is healthy. But instead of being completely present and centered in that essential experience, I felt torn between how, how can I keep everybody happy? How can I be here, but also keep my boss happy? How can I, what can I do? I'd been invited to a client meeting. That's why Friday was a bad time. And, uh, and to my, uh, to my shame, I said yes to that meeting. And I went and afterwards my boss said, the client will respect you for the choice you just made. I'm not sure the look on their faces evinced that sort of confidence. But even if they had, I was sure I had made a fool's bargain. And I had compromised my integrity to something uh, far less important uh, than, than what I should have been doing, where I should have been, and where I should have been present. And that was really where I learned this core idea this core um, message is a warning i suppose um, if you don't prioritize your life someone else will mm. yeah and that, and that that became the genesis and you know ultimately i um, quit that job and started uh, my business and wrote essentialism what became essentialism and now you know that is that is the thrust of my professional life is uh, is is teaching the ideas of uh, of essentialism into uh, you know into organizations into people's lives everything it, it it grows out of that experience that failure mm. it's fantastic I, it, it's so uh, it, it, not funny but it's so interesting how some of these moments in our lives that you know we perceive as as a failure or some of these choices that we have to make and and, and face often lead to us having our biggest lessons and then are, are often catalysts for us to achieve some of our greatest work. You well, know? I, I, I'm, I'm with you on this. I mean, C.S. Lewis talked about this, that, that we, we wish that suffering, um, that we could learn the lessons that we need to in life without suffering. He says, but, but we just don't. You know, the, the, the good times only teach us a certain number of lessons. Uh, I mean, using a very different, a different, a thinker for a moment, uh, you know, Bill Gates said that success is a very poor teacher. <laughs> it's very true. And I think, I think that's right. I think that in the, in the, the burning moments of our lives, in the, in either the tragedies or the errors, or, you know, when we just get it totally wrong or, uh, these are, these can be 
the great teachers of our lives. Uh, indeed, I remember reading a book uh, a while back about how the only time we learn is when we experience, uh, when we have expectation failure. Because because it's only in those times that we go, oh, that that didn't work how I thought it would work. So there's something else going on here. There's either something in me I haven't seen before, or there's something in people I haven't seen before, in systems I haven't seen before. There's something not working the way my mental model says it should work. And so it's only in those moments we have to rethink things. We have to say, okay, what didn't I understand before that I need to understand going forward? So so I do think that uh, I do think that there's a lot to this. Mm, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, how that's shown up in my life before, and I think how I've seen it show up in many people's lives is that it requires a certain degree of of presence and and being able to see what's actually happening and ask the right questions. I think I think it was um Henry David Thoreau that that said true wealth is the ability to be really present to any given moment. And <laughs> And, you know, because otherwise we have these failures, you know, these defining moments in our lives and they just kind of pass us by. And I think the reason why I absolutely love your message is that it requires a certain degree of not a certain degree. It requires a, a large degree of being very present and looking at your life from a somewhat strategic way and saying, OK, where am I distracted and how am I distracting myself and how am I cluttering up my life? And, and causing a, a sense of avoidance, right, from what's actually happening, from the small or large failures that might actually be happening in my life. So, yeah. I was talking, I was talking to, a, to, to a friend years ago uh, and asking, I suppose, some very early preliminary questions of, around essentialism. And they just, they just sort of stopped me. They said, listen, Greg, I am just too busy living to think about life. And that became one of those one-liners that you know, stating it out loud, just stating it so clearly like that names, not just, I, I suppose, where they were at, but I think where a lot of people find themselves at these days. Um, I mean, I've, I've, I actually think in a way there's only two kinds of people in the world. Uh, there are people who are lost, um, and then there are people who know they are lost. <laughs> That's awesome. And but... to be in the second category is is quite hard. In fact, it requires humility. It requires uh, self awareness. Uh, it requires courage, because you you, you know it's not, well, it's so uncomfortable, isn't it? To, to say, look, I don't know where I want to be five years from now, and I don't know what I really want from my one wild and precious life, and, and I don't know what my highest point of contribution is. I mean, to face any of that is painful. It's easier to pretend that we do and just, instead of answering the questions, just carry on doing what we're doing, carry on reacting to the latest email, uh, carry on with the, the routines that our life has evolved into that's much easier that requires almost no you know courage at all yeah it requires almost no no thought or, or presence whatsoever it's just running on autopilot right and I, I i think that you make a really an extremely valid valid and important point because i think a lot of people are really struggling with that because once they realize or once they start to begin to understand that 
they are lost or, you know, that they're not really too sure what direction they're going in. It's almost like it's, it's more frightening because then there's, there's so many more questions that start to get asked and uh, it can be, uh, you know, uh, having been, having been there before, it can be a very, very, um, almost a little bit disheartening in some sense because you kind of have this awakening and then you find yourself with more questions than you thought even existed. Um, so let's let's dive into this idea of essentialism. And I mean, we've already kind of been talking about it in a roundabout way, but, you know, let's let's talk about the book now that we understand where it came from, which is a very, very powerful story. Um, let's talk about some of the foundations. You know, you, you talk about essence. You've kind of broken the, the book into a couple pieces into the four pieces of essence, explore, eliminate and, and execute. Um, why did you start with essence? And, and can you give us a bit of a, an insight into why it's so important? This is where you have to start the journey. You have to start with the mindset. And the reason you have to start with the mindset primarily is because we already have been sold a way of thinking called non-essentialism. We have been taught in a thousand ways to believe in a way of being uh, that we don't even have a name for. I mean, it's such a monopoly view in at least the Western world, which means really when I say that it's not really West versus East, it's just the, the industrialized world, uh, has been taught to think like we are machines. Uh, we have to operate. A, we, it, the answer is to shove everything in. If you want to win, if you want to be successful, you have to be superhuman. You have to you – know, busyness is a badge of honor. Uh, there's this tremendous glorification of the busy, uh, and 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 so this already exists. It's already in our minds. You know, it's like it's like malware on a computer. We we we. It's already we're already infected, and and yet, despite the fact that we're infected, despite the fact that this is such dominant logic, this this mindset is just uh, the mindset of more is so deeply entrenched into the culture. It's, it's spliced into the DNA of, of, of almost every organization, every institution, every advertisement, every, uh, every television show, every magazine. I mean, it's just everywhere. So it is just there. But like fish discover water last, we, we don't know it's there. And so we're operating out of a set of instructions, mental models, that we didn't deliberately choose. And as in terms of sort of a history lesson to get a sense of how, how broad this is and how deep this has gone, just think about uh, the, the, the word priority, which uh, came into the English language in the 1400s, right? So this is a long time before the Industrial Revolution. And what did it mean? It meant priority, uh, so the prior thing, the, the very first thing. And that's uh, I emphasize that I'm going because it stayed in that singular form for the next 500 years, and and I want to pause on on how how extraordinary that is that that nowhere in the English speaking world for half a millennium did anybody think to pluralize the term. <laughs> 
nobody. And all those people, think of how many people, millions of people and all the language used. And everyone, every time they reference the word priority, they're using, they're just saying, what is, what is the priority? They mean the first thing. And it was in response, I believe, to the Industrial Revolution, which, uh, you know, overturned many things that needed to be overturned, but also threw out the baby with the bathwater in certain principles as well. As they, as they suddenly said, machines and factory systems will can solve every kind of human problem. It can solve certain product, productivity problems incredibly well, but it actually is really inappropriate in a lot of human problems. And so this is when suddenly some people are pluralizing this term, priorities. But can you have very many absolutely first before all other things things? I mean, of course not. And yet with no sense of irony at all, who hasn't been to a meeting of some kind where somebody said, look, here are our 20 priorities and, and, and none of them are more important or less important than everything else. Everything has to be done. Everything perfect now. And, and then, in fact, it, you have to upgrade that even further because is uh, when does it have to be done? Yesterday. Uh, yeah. Now, this is the dominant logic of non-essentialism. Now, we've gone into that in some depth there for a moment because – that's why the first section of the book is this idea of essence, which is what is the mindset of an essentialist? How does an essentialist see the world? And they see the world so differently. Where they see the world is that almost everything is meaningless noise. There's a few things that are superb, incredibly valuable, very few things. You know, you, and, and so what you because there's only such few things that are so valuable, you have the incentive to figure out what the priority is. Because everything isn't equally valuable, because it's not just an efficiency game of get as much of this stuff shoved into your life as possible, and get through it and get work through it. Instead of thinking about it as, as mining coal, suddenly it's like, no, I'm in the business of diamonds. I, I've got to look very carefully, very thoughtfully, consider uh, how to operate, uh, not just do everything because I have to, but I'm going to choose to go after those vital few things instead of the trivial many. And what I'm saying, I'll just tie this together here, is that once the mindset shifts, a whole set of behaviors become natural and instinctive. And that's why the whole first section of the book is 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 emphasizing an, an outdated mindset that happens to be false and advocating for a mindset that actually is the way that people and human systems thrive wow yeah and i mean there's there's so there's so much um depth and and wealth of thought there um but the one thing that i would that i would i would pick out is you know the the idea that a priority you know you i i think in in business especially and in family life and in relationships we often um, compound the issue by creating all these priorities. And oftentimes when we create multiple priorities, we're, we're creating issues for ourselves because those priorities are going against, you know, the, the inherent, um, the inherent order in which we would like to achieve them. And so we have conflicting priorities then, right? And, and it's, it's quite interesting because there's almost like this, it almost creates this uh, paralysis where we're unable to, to do or accomplish anything. And so I love the idea of, of boiling it down. I think it was, I think it was Da Vinci that said simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. And, uh, you know, that idea that you have one 
penultimate uh, priority that is really the sort of like the the thing that you need to do or accomplish is is very powerful. And I, I love the I love this the fact that you start off the book with the incredible power of choice. And so you dive right into uh, choice right after this. And and I'd like to kind of just discuss that because I think a lot of people struggle with feeling like they know how to make very powerful choices in their life. And so I would, I would love it if you could just give us some insight into, you know, what, what does a really powerful choice look like and, and how can we go about cultivating uh, a better sense of feeling like we're accomplishing, uh, making the, the decisions and choices in our life in a powerful way? Yes. I, I think when I, when I think about choices, the, the big thing that comes to mind for the person of this conversation is, is actually moving through the structure that you, you introduced at the beginning with, it's from the book, this idea of essence being the mindset. And then what is the, what's the skill set? How do you apply essentialism? And there are three sections, explore, eliminate, and execute. So let's just think about explore from this idea of being able to make choices and have choices. Um, you know, the, the paradox that I found in studying essentialists is that they actually explore far more choices, far more options than their non-essentialist counterparts. And the reason that's true is because uh, a non-essentialist acts so impulsively that they're going big before they know it. it you know, they, they, it's sort of just so reactive. I just have to. Somebody emails them, hey, can you work on this project? Okay, I'll go work on that project. And so they're, they're not considering. They're not, they're not really choosing. They're just reacting. They're just doing it. I have to. There's, my boss's boss asked me something. I've got to do it. Um, and, and so their awareness of their ability to choose is just totally forgotten. They always have the ability to choose, but they're just forgetting it. There is no sense of it. An essentialist has a heightened awareness of their ability to choose and therefore can choose to pause can choose to explore, to think, is this, what, is this the best use of me? What's the best way to approach the question that they're asking? It doesn't mean they suddenly become non-responsive to everybody and the things coming at them, but they are more thoughtful. Uh, they are, um, you, you know, they're, they're being more selective. They're exploring more, doing less, discerning more, committing to less. And so that's kind of the, the beginning. If, from a very practical point of view, what I would recommend to people uh, in applying Explore is that they create space to figure out what's essential every day in this way. To every day, take a few minutes. I tend to do it first thing in the morning and make a list of the six things that really seem important to you that day, personally and professionally. The most essential things, and you put it in priority order, and, and then you cross off the bottom five. Now, I'm I'm only half joking about the cut off the bottom five, <laughs> but the idea is that you really explore broadly and then choose. Here is uh, here's the priority now. Like here's what's important now. It has a nice acronym, which is WIN. What's important now? And, and you figure that out. Now, the, you make the list of six. You work on the first item. You do as much as you can. You work on the second item and so on. 
And that doesn't mean you don't do anything else. And it doesn't mean, as I say, that you're non-responsive to all the other things. But what it does mean is that you have an anchor, an essential anchor to go back to all through the day. And just like a plane is off track 90% of the time, they're going from San Francisco to London, you're off track 90% of the time, but you still get to where you want to get to when you're supposed to get there because you keep coming back to being on track. And that's how I think people begin this journey of being an essentialist. You make this list of six, you get it clear. Some days you'll forget to do it. Some days you won't do it. You'll feel the difference. On those days, you'll sense how frenetic and frantic life feels. And then you'll do it again the next day and you'll sense how your day expands. And and, and this is this is the a very practical beginning step on the journey to becoming an essentialist. Yeah, that's that's absolutely fantastic. And you know, it, it it occurs to me that it's it's kind of like cutting out the clutter, you know, and and allowing yourself to experience. Because I think one of the things that we often do, it, I think our society and our culture is very prone to, you know, when you say explore, I think what would probably come up for most people and what would have come up for me, you know, three, five, six, ten years ago would be, okay, I need to explore things. So I'm going to go out and do everything. And, and then it's, you're just in that reactionary state again. And I think what you're talking about is very counterintuitive to how most of us operate on a day-to-day basis with, within regards to ourselves and our businesses, where, you know, we are very reactive to our circumstances and very reactive to the things that are happening instead of creating that, that one thing that we want to explore. So do you think that this, do you think this is applies to, you know, creativity and, and art? Is this, is this, sort of like mutually exclusive to to business and, and relationships or or can it expand out into all areas of our life? Well, I think that it is. I, essentialism isn't one more thing to apply in one area of life. It is a different way of, uh, of thinking about everything. Um, so so absolutely. It, if, I mean, you mentioned artists. I mean, I just, my, my wife and I, we took our children uh, to, to Italy for, uh, for my wife's 40th birthday. So we made a you know, big deal about this. We wanted to go out there and make memories together. And we, we've looked, we, we spent time uh, in uh, some of the, the, the best art museums in the world. And, you know, you just, just look, at, uh, look at the Statue of David. Uh, it, this took years of work on a single project. And what was produced was a masterpiece. The, the, the Sistine Chapel, the roof of the, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, right? Same thing. Yes. Singular focus produced this extraordinary masterpiece. Now, those are, those are a, a, a radical examples when people think about their lives today. I mean, who spends years working on a single masterpiece project? Uh, you know, that's not how we think about our days now and our, and our lives now. And yet that's what it took to create this, this masterpiece. And so I, I think that using it as a metaphor, even if you don't use it as a very, as a realistic, practical, this is what you should do. We do need to get, I mean, of course it re- applies to art. Of course it applies to the different, the different uh, areas of our lives that we want to pursue. Uh, you, you, it's a philosophy. It's an idea that, uh, that it's, Tremendously countercultural today, but this idea, simple idea, less but better, less but better. That's the philosophy in three words. That's what we're saying. It's not just less is more. I'm not sure I entirely even know what less is more means, but 
but but it certainly doesn't mean somehow this is a way to efficiently get more stuff done. That's the industrial revolution model. That's the factory model. It's just streamline, you know, how you're doing so you can produce more in less time. That's not what I'm advocating. That is not what essentialism is advocating. And the reason that I'm not advocating that is because that doesn't work with humans. It doesn't produce what it's We've been sold that it produces. That's why I said it was a bill of goods. It doesn't produce breakthrough results. It doesn't produce fulfilling life. It doesn't produce great contribution. What it produces is exhaustion. Uh, People feeling busy but not productive. It it produces people um, saying yes just to please and then resenting it afterwards. Uh, It produces people who are overworked and underutilized. Uh, That's the actual output of non-essentialism. So – at, at the very best, it makes me feel very frustrated, but often it makes me um, makes me furious, really, because the cost of it is so high. It it it, it is it. I mean, think of the I think the men on this listening to this. Think of the marriages that have been damaged. Think of the families that have been damaged. Think of the people who have. Yeah, maybe they didn't pull McEwen and the day of their daughter's birth are at work, but maybe they've done other things like it over time. And drip by drip, they have given sway to this idea of, I've just got to fit it all in. I've got to do it all. What if they don't have to do it all? What if that's not true? What if, in fact, it's a total lie? Uh, what if there's a totally different, better way of living that that invests in the most important relationships? You know, you're exploring what is essential? And number two, you're eliminating what's not essential. That is you are, you are allocating resources differently. You're saying, I'll say an example for me, you're saying I'm going to turn down the number of hours that I am networking, let's say. And I'm going to turn that way down, that, that resource level, and I'm going to turn up the number of hours that I spend with my wife listening to her, talking to her, Try, you know, seek to the rule of thumb for that for me now is 20 hours a week in listening to, to in talking with my wife, sharing things, connecting. Oh, what a difference. Does that, does that, does that affect my relationship with her? Of course that shifts it from being good. It's always been good to great. It's great. I have a great relationship with my wife. It's great. I don't know. I, I know I just said it three times, but I feel like saying it three times. It's great. This is, this is a magic life in our relationship. It's the best relationship of my whole life. Why? Because of allocation change. Does that change my relationship with my children? It does. Does it change the feeling in my home? It does. Is there real change and transformation because of, 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 of kicking out the lie of non-essentialism and adopting less but better, less relationships done better? That has changed my life, continues to. Mm. I think it can change other people's lives as well. Yeah, that's fantastic. And it, you know, I think I think a lot of uh, a lot of guys that you know, and, and women who who are probably out there listening to this, you know, where our society and our culture is very achievement based, right? And we all want to accomplish things. We want to, you know, get the get the promotion, get the house, get the faster, nicer car, get you know, get the better body. And, and so it's it's very achievement based. And so I think we're kind of wired. Um, and I know for myself, this has been very true in the past, We've been very, very wired 
um, to, to try and accomplish it all. It's that spray and pray idea, right? It's like that shotgun idea where you try and accomplish everything and you spread yourself so thin. And, you know, I think that, you know, maybe we, maybe we can talk about possibility. What's possible on the other side of this? And I know you just kind of touched on bits and pieces, but for the listeners out there, um, who are, who are, you know, very high performers, they're very, you know, accomplished people that are, that are, you know, listening to this podcast, what's possible when you do follow through with this, uh, you know, with this essentialism idea and you start practicing this on a daily and weekly basis, what, what could be possible for them? Uh, Maybe appeal to their achiever side. (laughs) Well, I mean, let's, uh, let's just talk about an example of this. Uh, I, an executive that I interviewed for the book was doing award-winning work, tremendous work. Uh, partially as a result of that, his company was purchased by a larger, more bureaucratic firm. He goes to a new firm, wants to be a good team player, wants to be a good citizen. What does he do? Start saying yes to almost everyone and everything without really thinking about it. What happens to his stress? Goes up. What happens to the quality of his work? Goes down that's a contribution gap. It's a value gap. It's a, it's a fulfillment gap, a frustrating gap. It's so frustrating, he almost leaves the company, but somebody gives him some counterintuitive advice. They say, look, what if you just retired in your current role? And what they meant by that was, what if you didn't, what if you are only going to be paid for the value you create? And it's not about how busy you are. It's not about the, the, the you're showing that you're in every meeting and you've got your, your finger in every, every project. It was just, what are you actually, what value are you producing? And it, it changed this whole orientation. So going to a meeting what wasn't just a default position. If someone invited him, he went. He had thought about it. He had to reflect on it, consider it. Is this the very best use of me? And what it did for him is it, first of all, it gave him his life back. So, you know, can't avoid the, uh, the, the, that side of, of things for a moment. I mean, he, he ate dinner with his wife at night. He was able to go to the gym. He was able to just create space again. And he also created space on his calendar at work, which meant that he was able to find again his creative freedom. And he was able to make a tremendous contribution. By the end of that year, his performance evaluation had gone up and he ended that year with one of the largest bonuses of his whole career. What did he learn? He learned if you say yes to everyone and everything without really thinking about it, you cannot be utilized at your highest point of contribution by definition. He learned if you try and do it all, you'll make, you'll just do averagely well at many things. If you want to break through to the next level of contribution, you must Go big on fewer things. That's what he learned. But just everybody listening can ask themselves this question. Have they ever found themselves stretched too thin at work or at home? Yes. Have they ever been busy but not productive? Yes. Uh, Have they ever said yes just to avoid trouble? Yes. And the reason the answers are yes to all those questions isn't because they're crazy people. It's because they're driven. It's because they're successful. It's because they're curious. And it's because non-essentialism is everywhere. And so the question that I would put to people is which of these two strategies, many, many things averagely well, or a few things distinctly, superbly well, which strategy is most likely to help to both break through to the next level of achievement and fulfillment? Like, which of those strategies is most likely to produce it? Mm, Definitely essentialism. 
definitely essentialism. I mean, maybe there's no other answer you can give with me having the conversation today. But, 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 here, but here's the thing, right? I mean, both are reasonable strategies. Somebody can choose either one. I, I, that's up to them to choose. But here's what I believe is that when people are given the choice, clearly they will choose fewer things done better. They'll believe, they believe and make sense to people. It has a resonance and a truth about it that they say, no, that's the way, that's the way that I will make my biggest contribution, that I will make my mark in the world. Uh, And yet, what is the path that almost everyone's taking today? It's It's the first strategy. Many things average the world. And the question and the way that I'm asking it's the philosophical question is why? And the reason I answer that, the answer to that question is because it's already in the air, it's in the culture, it's so dominant. But it doesn't have to be the path that somebody takes. And there's an increasing number of people that I work with and that I talk to and that, you know, who are seeing there is this path of the essentialist, that they can become an essentialist. That it's not one more thing. You know, I'm not advocating. Sometimes people, I'll do a keynote and sometimes somebody will come up to me afterwards and say, oh, you know, that was so great. It's, it's just a, such a good reminder of, of, of one more thing I need to, I need to do. <laughs> and I always think, I don't think, I don't think that you heard what it is I said. <laughs> because, um, because it's not about one more thing, right? It's not about being a non-essentialist, stay, keeping that and then, every so often remembering to act like an essentialist does. It's to change that, to major in the essential, to take on a new identity. I'm an essentialist. I want to pursue only those things that really matter, to change the identity. At first, you'll still be flooded with the non-essential, but your identity has shifted. Your mindset has shifted. You say, oh, I, I, I want to become more and more of who I really am and less and less of who I really am not. And over time, we can become consumed with very few deliberate purposes in our lives. And that becomes what, what drives us and fires us up. I had somebody just the other day say to me, a very driven, very, very capable individual said to me, um, said to me I just realized that in my life, that in the best case scenario, I'm one, I'm one grain of sand in the universe, right? So many people, billions of people, so many years, I'm a grain of sand in my best case scenario. If I try to split that a hundred ways, I just won't make a contribution. And so their idea was, I, w- I want to give my whole sand, you know, my whole grain of sand to just one or two things that really matter and, uh, and, and that I'll feel proud of on my deathbed. Mm, that's fantastic. Well, I mean, that's a, it's, it's a great segue because we need to start wrapping up, but it's a great segue to the, uh, to the last question that we love to ask all of our guests, which is what is the legacy that you would like to leave behind in the world? It's, um, for me, it's going to all be about intergenerational family for me. The, 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 that's it. That is it. So right now, that means definite priority for me and relationship priority is, uh, is with my wife. Um, it, it, the natural extension is with my children. The natural extension is then with extended family. But it's not just extended family. It, it, it goes beyond that. It is for me to think about, uh, learn about, care about, 
my ancestors, my parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, how they shaped me, gratitude for what they gave to me, awareness of some of the uh, some of the, the the mindsets that they've handed down to me that I haven't even thought about before. Awareness of not just my children and not even my grandchildren, but way beyond that. Years after I've gone, a hundred year vision in the future. Uh, for me, the, the, the everything that is essential to me is epitomized in the idea of uh, of trying to raise, bless, and continue an intergenerational family. That's what it's about for me. Wonderful. That's, uh, that's fantastic and, and very powerful. Um, Greg, thank you so, so much for your time today. Uh, you know, for the listeners who want to check you out and check out what you do, um, with your company, uh, this Inc. and, and your book, where can they find you? I, I just think going to gregmcewen.com is probably the, the simplest thing. G-R-E-G McEwen, M-C-K-E-O-W-N, gregmcewen.com. Wonderful. And we'll, we'll have that uh, link alongside your, your bio in, in the profile so they can check you out there. And for those of you who would like to hear a little bit more about the podcast and the upcoming events that we have going on, go to mantox.com. Uh, check out all the events, podcasts, and blogs that we have. We have a wonderful event coming up on April 9th with Lewis Howes uh, the, from the School of Greatness and uh, Ryan Holmes, who is the founder of Hootsuite here in Vancouver. And we also have, uh, we're also launching in Toronto. And so we will be live in Toronto uh, at the second floor events with about 180, 200 people on April 18th, which some amazing, amazing speakers. So check that out. Greg, uh, thanks very, very much again. Absolutely fantastic conversation. And we will talk with you soon. Connor, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks very much. Join us next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring man.